with uh, Christina Naismith and David Rowlands uh, from Scottish Government uh, to discuss the draft framework uh, for community health and social care integrated services. Um, and so we had a couple of questions uh, at the tail end of the webinar that weren't uh, managed to get answered in time, so we're just going to go ahead and pose them right off the bat here. So, Matthew, if you want to ask the, the first ones. Yes, sure. So the first guest question came from Lynn, who wanted to ask, how do we culturally support staff and get on with some silo busting? So I think that's, that, that's an excellent question. Um, and. I think for me begins to, to touch on some of those enablers that we've already described within the framework. Um, so I think we need to be clear with, with, with our staff what our, our vision for integration is and how we want to improve care and support and outcomes for people. Um, to absolutely support them in, in, in delivering that and to understand their contribution to it and empowering them to be creative and innovative and the knowledge that they will be supported when things go well uh, and supported when things perhaps don't go so well and, and there's the opportunity for learning to further develop services along the way. Um, but we need to work with them to build that true team ethos, that, that true sense of common culture and, and values and behaviours that do bust the silos out, out the water. Um, so for me, the, the, the question's a brilliant question and the answer lies at the heart of the, the environment that we create for our staff to begin to do things differently. Can I just maybe say that the, 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 the to be absolutely clear that the framework is only part of the work that we're doing and leading after the review of integration. There were 25 proposals made within the review document that was published in February that covers things like leadership and the need for uh, people to work much more closely together and to create that collaborative leadership ethos throughout and that means looking at culture, behaviours, how people work together, um, how you involve appropriately people who are using services so that it's, there's also a, a thing about bringing, it's not just a professional perspective but also that very much the, the, the real and, and frankly the most important perspective of people who either want to use services for, for a period or uh, people who, who are constantly requiring to, to, to access services for, for different purposes. It's really important that we have a culture where that's recognised and that, that, that it's understood that um, there's nothing, that the, the magic we believe comes when people work effectively together and that when you, you, you regard people as experts you know, living in their own lives and know their own needs better than anyone and that's what we're really keen to approach. Thank you. Next up, Suzanne wanted to ask, how do we address the hierarchy that exists between statutory and third sector organisations? I guess building on what, what we've already just been describing, uh, it's difficult because I, I think that, that there's a lot, that, I mean, I, I'm an old person now, unfortunately, unfortunately it brings wisdom as well as other issues, but um, the, the, the thing that I would say is over the years, and I've worked very many years in the statutory sector, but also within the voluntary sector, I used to work for Women's Aid many moons ago, um, and I would say that there's a much better relationship that's been uh, basically developed over the years, particularly within the health service, who although they would have worked with big national organisations, didn't have the same history that local authorities have had of supporting lots of uh, community organisations through grant schemes and so forth and, and so on. 
And I do think that there's a much better regard and understanding of what the third sector has to, to bring to the table, which is innovation, which is fast-paced moving. I'm also on the board of a voluntary organisation, I would say, as well. So there's tons and tons out there. There always has been. I think the respect and understanding has grown. That doesn't mean it doesn't need to grow further. I think that there's more work to be done. There always will be. But I do think there's been huge strides taken forward. I, I would agree with that, that entirely, and I, and I think it's about, about as Christina says, building on that going forward and developing those relationships further, um, and just to provide a wee bit of reassurance around the recognition of that, um, and some of the, the draft actions that we have mapped out to support implementation, we, we recognise that, that integration authorities will need to assess their maturity against the framework, they'll need to plan uh, improvement against the framework, and then assess the impact of that improvement against the framework, and those actions um, reflect the need to involve communities, carers, mm -hmm. third and independent sectors in a very open and transparent process um, that cuts across all of those actions. Um, so it really does put um, everyone who has a role to play in care and support front and centre um, as part of that, that assessment and planning process. Thank you. So next up, Lynn's made a good point. She said that single point of contract works fabulously well for individual citizens in our communities. How are we identifying those most in need? So, so, so in, in, in terms of how we identify those most in need, it can be a, a combination of, of, of ways. Um, some people will, will present to services um, at a time when, when they, um, they, they have particular needs and either they or their families will bring them forward to services. Other people will be identified <coughs> by individuals who are already involved in the care and recognise that their needs have changed. Um, and, and then make the connection for them in terms of that next step in, the, in their journey. Um, so it can be, be through a, a variety of routes and what we're trying to do through the concept of single point of contact <coughs> is very much, um, as I said earlier, take that, that ambiguity and complexity out of the potential next steps that an individual might take and, and that could be for the person and, and their family themselves so they, they, they know where to go to get whatever help it is they need and, and be assured that they will be directed to the right service or it could be taking that ambiguity and complexity out of the, the equation for professionals who, who know that their person needs help, but not quite sure as to what the right service would be. But if they, if they go through a single point of contact, then they, they're assured that that person gets to the right person first thing. I think historically that there's been something about people being described as hard to reach. And I don't think we would um, subscribe to that particular terminology, but what we would say is that sometimes services have been difficult to access and difficult for people to um, work their way through and understand what they do, who they speak to, where they go. Um, and often GPs have been the way into services for people. And that only works for, for amount, certain amounts of the, 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 the community. I think that what has developed over the piece is many, many more people approaching third sector organisations, basically local community organisations looking to get some support when they're not even clear themselves what it is exactly that they're needing and that's the kind of uh, so-called pathways that we would want to develop where it's clear that if someone needs just a bit more support than any particular organisation is able to provide them, there's a very clear way of accessing more and better and whatever else that, that, that someone might need. But I do think we need to move away from that it's people who are who's, who's hard to reach and much more that services can be hard for people to reach. That's great. Uh, so Health and Social Care Integration has been with us for a few years now. What led to the Scottish Government's decision to develop this framework and why do you think it is needed? 
What led to it was um, we had a review of progress with integration uh, that ran from May of last year, uh, May 2018, that was invoked by our cab then Cabinet Secretary, Shona Robinson, and that was agreed in Parliament that we would uh, basically undertake this, this review. During that period, there was an Audit Scotland uh, report that also came out in, in November 2018 that helpfully said integration can and does work no need for, uh, to change the legislation, but then we needed to look at ways that we could roll out the, the, the best practice and take the, the, the good examples forward. So from the review that was undertaken, uh, mainly during 2018, we published um, a, a report that was under the auspices of the Ministerial Strategic Group for uh, Community Health and uh, Care, and that was um, published in February of this year in 2019. And that contains 25 proposals in all, grouped under a range of headings that were adopted from the, the Audit Scotland report. The framework was one of those proposals, and it's very, very crucial that we understand the framework to be part of a wider range of, I, I guess, um, work that, that, that we're, we're having to undertake to make sure that the good things that are happening around integration are not happening by accident and happening in wee corners of wherever, but are actually commonly understood. People are working towards best practice, people are working towards improving uh, the services that are offered to people, and that people themselves have a much clearer voice in how they access those services and the kind of services that they get. Cheers. Thank you. What would you both say are the main challenges we are facing in the role of integration in Scotland? And how can a framework for community health and social care address these challenges? If we refer to what I was saying earlier, I guess that the main, or just a, a second ago, is that the framework is, is a, a major contribution to that, but it's not the only contribution. Some of the other changes are, for example, in and around more kind of transactional things around money and how um, funding is agreed between the, the statutory organisations to go into integration. And that has been a particular area of difficulty across the country that we've still not got, got that quite right, although there's been a huge amount of work done to make improvements and those are beginning to make their way through. But were we, for example, to, to undertake the, the, the framework without addressing the, th the things around leadership, culture, behaviours, we don't believe things would work maybe just so well. So we're very clear that there's a whole raft of things that we have to do and we're taking those forward together. So for example, uh, probably another interesting piece of work that's going on that you will be interested in is some work on um, statutory guidance, revised statutory guidance across health and social care for community engagement. And again, that's an area that's of huge interest to, to, to people about how they engage to inform um, how services are developed going forward, how services are changed, but also just the fact that you shouldn't be waiting um, if you're working within health and social care to engage with people when you want to make a change. That actually, the norm should be that, that engagement is an ongoing process and that people are involved and understand what's happening and are contributing their ideas um, concerns, issues, whatever, to how we make things better. So there's a, a whole raft of things, as I say, 25 proposals in all, of which the framework is a very important part. Uh, I suppose I, I would just add to that slightly to say that I think, what, for me, one of the key challenges um, for integration is that, that redesign of services, the <coughs> down of um, 
traditional sectoral and professional barriers to create new fully integrated teams and, and adopt new roles within those teams as well, at the same time as delivering high quality, effective care to meet existing demand. Um, and, and we've all seen the, 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 sort of, um, the, the video footage of, 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 of the team trying to build an aircraft as it's flying. And, and that's kind of how it perhaps feels um, sometimes in the front line. You, you are desperately trying to, to get something that's, that's right for the future at the same time as doing the right thing for people in the here and now. And that's a real challenge. And what I think the framework can do to, to help with that challenge is to identify those areas that are already doing little pockets of really good stuff and shine the light on those to allow others to, to learn from them and adapt them. Um, so there's at least a blueprint as you're trying to build that plane in flight. Okay. And so how did you, how was the framework developed and who was involved uh, in the development of it? Essentially what we did was um, in government we always recognise whenever we can do with some help and some uh, input from local experts. Um, and we brought in David and Secondment from having worked in uh, North Asia Health and Social Care Partnership with a lot of knowledge and experience to help us do the work that's necessary to bring in all of the good practice that David's referred to throughout um, and to get that those relationships and to do things like this, to have the podcast, to, to, to get out there and start to discuss what the framework could be about, what should be included. And clearly um, this isn't a, a kind of, you know, once and for all, this is about building a dynamic system whereby we can continue to learn, which is why it's called a framework and not something that is uh, uh, immutable and will never ever be changed. It's about recognising that we know what we know at this stage and we certainly plan to build from that. I described earlier when we were, we were doing a webinar that essentially there's uh, lots and lots of very, very excellent and good practice, but it doesn't exist everywhere and not everybody's doing everything perfectly. Surprise, surprise. So there's, everybody's got something to learn from what other people are doing. The fact also remains that uh, we're sitting in Glasgow at the moment, a uh, fine city, I come from it myself, is, is that it, it's not the same as the Western Isles. And we shouldn't imagine that you can, you can just have the same, exactly the same people delivering exactly the same services to exactly the same kind of people. Because again, you know, Scotland's population is very diverse and there needs to be that uh, response effective response to that diversity and, and uh, difference in, and different people's needs. So our expectation is that we're, we're laying down the best practice, gathering that together and looking at the building blocks that, that David has developed with others in relation to what's in the framework currently. And, and in a practical sense, um, since taking up my, my, my secondment, I, I, I've, I've engaged quite widely with um, colleagues from the statutory sector, from the third sector, from the independent sector, um, to get that real sense of people's hopes and aspirations for, for the framework, um, and, and as Christina said, to, to, to try and build something that, that is very much a, a dynamic, living document that will evolve and develop over time as, 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 as practice develops as well. I've, I've been really privileged, I have to say, over the course of the last seven or eight weeks now to, to engage much more widely as part of an, a, 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 an engagement programme around the, the draft framework and I've, I've made an offer of visiting every integration authority in Scotland and, and the vast majority have, have taken me up on that and um, so that's, that's, been, that's been great to get, get feedback from all those sources but, but equally come along to the, 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 the Alliance today to do the webinar um, but previously to engage with the, the Alliance team. 
um, and next week to engage with Alliance members and um, really begins to broaden out that, that conversation. Um, also through, through, through the recent weeks and over the next couple of weeks really broadened out the conversation with professional groups as well so people like um, um, Social Work um, Scotland, people like um, the Royal College of Nursing and the Royal College of, of General Practitioners um, to make sure there is that, that, that wide ranging professional buy-in to whatever the final framework looks like as well. So it, it's been it's been a really tight timeline to deliver a, a framework within um, what's going to be six months to get back to the Ministerial Strategic Group but I think we've got something that, that has um, reached out to and sought the views of a wide range of people reflecting as well though that when it comes to the operational delivery of the framework at a local level there's going to be a need for much wider engagement consultation around the associated service chain so that the integration authorities themselves are going to have to lead on. And do we know the date for that at all, for when that consultation is going to be occurring? We, we don't yet, so okay. so the, the, the timeline that we've got ahead of us just now is that we are looking to go to the Ministerial Strategic Group on the 18th of um, September um, and if we get agreement on the draft framework at that stage and Christine and I are probably looking at about six months worth of, of work over the winter to prepare for um, delivery and implementation uh, and, and the, the, the integration authorities will pick it up and run with it thereafter. So, so in my head, it'll be sometime in 2020, 2021. Um, but no, no firm dates around that yet. Can I also just say that I don't think we were talking about traditional consultation mm. processes. This is very much about an engagement and involvement process. That's that, that each integration authority has a, a engagement, community engagement, and a participation strategy in place. And obviously, again, some are better at doing that than others. However, there's some very, very excellent processes in place. There's also some really great examples of when people have been leading the changes that they want to see in their local area. So we would expect, and not just hope, we would fully expect that that kind of uh, good practice would be adopted in terms of where local areas go next and how they take this forward. Thank you. Thank you. So what would you both say are the key aspects of this framework? I think the, the key aspects is, are, are basically different sectors working together in an integrated way in and around, particularly the role of the, the general practitioner who's the local expert in, in providing that kind of medical care. But that doesn't mean we're talking about medical models, it just means that we've got a recognition of what that GP can do and therefore that leads to what else everybody else can, can, can be doing because everybody's expert in their own fields and, and what they bring. Um, a GP wouldn't, for example, know what community clubs were running in a local area, wouldn't know how to access them, wouldn't know if there was a waiting list, wouldn't know who was eligible, all that carry on, and wouldn't have a clue how you would set about actually setting up such a, 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 a group. So there's different people who've got different expertise, and I guess that what we're looking to do is to combine that expertise in the best possible way and some kind of structure that, 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 that people can understand and know where they sit relative to other kinds of services. But at root, what we want is for people who are using services and who, who live in local communities to also participate in the shape of that, so that it's not something that's all designed by professionals or, or workers, but there's a coming together, there's an opportunity for that combination of a professional perspective alongside people who are using services and their carers, local communities and families. Yeah, I, I, would, I would absolutely wholeheartedly uh, agree with that and I guess just, just build on it with, with, with two other elements of the framework that I think are really, really important and one, one Christine has already um, mentioned and that is that, that recognition that 
different integration authorities have different circumstances and different needs and therefore while the framework offers a consistency of um, approach and focus, it also offers a recognition that there needs to be local development uh, of services towards the delivery of, 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 of that focus, that aim and those outcomes. So it's, I think that's really important that, that that's seen within the framework. And the other, the other element of the framework that I think is, is really important and, and I've said previously um, probably the most important thing is, is, is those enablers um, that appear within the framework. That, that clarity of vision, that collaborative leadership, the, the, the strong relationships, the culture, values, the ethos that's all shared. Um, if that's not in place then it's really difficult to deliver um, and sustain effective integrated care. So I think both of those are really important. So we know there's good work taking place uh, with the scope of integration authorities that could be adopted. Who's this framework meant for? Uh, is it just integration authorities or can organisations from across sectors use this to share their good practice and how can they do that if so? So, so I, I, I always look at integration in its widest sense um, and I, I see the third and independent sectors in particular as being um, absolutely key to the, the, the delivery of this, this framework and hence the reason the actions, the draft actions at this stage are, are framed in the way they are um, to bring those sectors together with, with, with traditional health and social care services and local communities to begin to deliver on this. So I think it's really important that where um, third and independent sectors have examples of good practice that they come forward and share that, that with us so that we can reflect it in the good practice guide that looks alongside the framework. What measure in place to ensure that integrations of integration authorities use the framework to both share good practice and adopt good practice? It measures in, in the sense of what, what are we doing to make sure that it will be adopted? Um, I was thinking you meant data, me data measurement. Uh, uh, no, what, what we're doing is that obviously this will be all approved through a process of ministerial agreement, but not just with ministers of the Scottish Government. Also, uh, COSLA is, uh, jointly chairs the ministerial strategic group that I've been referring to, and we'd be looking for sign-off from both those, those parties in relation to local authorities and uh, Scottish Government clearly as a, as a direct line to, to the work of, of the National Health Service. So those are very, very key um, points that we need to, to get approval from and acceptance from. And we know that the Ministerial Strategic Group will be calling us to account on a regular basis for the rollout, where it's going to, what are the issues, that are, if, if there are any, and we can expect that there will be, because there always will be, um, in terms of implementation and what we can do to help progress and, uh, and make sure that people are uh, looking to the, the, the framework and develop in their own ways. What, what we're, we will be doing is developing um, a process of support, of looking at um, how local areas can actually in involve themselves in this and adopt the, the, the kinds of uh, building blocks that, that, that we've referred to that are identified within the framework. But it also is the, the case, and I keep coming back to this, that it's not just the framework that will be doing that. The framework is, is an incredibly important part of what we're doing, but we've got a whole lot of activity outside of the, the actual framework itself that should help people to be in a better place to actually work with the framework. And I think that, that's probably as much as our work that we're doing currently. The, the, the uh, Ministerial Strategic Group report that I referred to that's about the progress of, of integration and the 25 recommendations are due for delivery by the end of February in 2020. So 
we'll still have a whole tranche of work to, to take forward even after the completion and delivery of those proposals and we'll need to look to see what does that mean and where, where do we take this to. But there's no denying it that the hard work will definitely begin in, in terms of uh, delivering on the framework and, and we're under no illusions about uh, that, that being an easy task. But uh, I think there's a lot of preparation work that we've already got underway that should make sure that, that that's not just a possibility but a reality. Um, and so you've already touched on this, but just as the, the last question, so people are aware, when will the, the framework be published and what do you expect to happen after it is published? It, what, what's happening is that the, the framework will be going in draft form with a, a, a whole a report kind of attached to it to the Ministerial Strategic Group on the 18th of September. That becomes a, a public document at that point. Um, we won't be publishing it formally as a, as a, a document at that point, although the, the, the MSG documents are available, we'll make sure that those can be put on the Alliance website and whatever and, and shared widely. But that's really just the beginning of the work. So I think that what we'd be loath to see is that the framework is an end in itself. The framework going to MSG is just the beginning, and it's the beginning of a long a piece of work that will be about how do we get to the other end when we can see, yeah, we can see that across Scotland there's a real consistency in how people have approached the development of services and there's a whole big programme of work that will have to accompany that that will make sure it's, it's delivered effectively. Okay, David, Christina, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank, thank you very much, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. The Alliance Live podcast can be found on all major podcast streaming platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and CastBox. Don't forget to sign up to the next Alliance Live webinar, showcasing examples of innovative and integrated working taking place across Scotland within health and social care. Follow at Alliance Scott on Twitter to find out how. Learn more about the work that we do at the Alliance by visiting our website, www.alliance-scotland.org.uk That's www.alliance-scotland.org.uk